You know, Pastor uh, Dane and Pastor Dennis are in Haiti this week, and uh, Dane has to put up with me most weeks because I just can't leave his name alone because he's got one of those cool Russian last names. His name is Dane Mildov, and it's always funner to say his name with a Russian accent. And uh, it actually worked out really great this week because my opening illustration is about Fyodor Dostoevsky, which is just as fun to say. So Fyodor Dostoevsky, we know him as the author of Crime and Punishment, um, was one of the towering literary figures in the 19th century. He was a genius writer in his own respect, and he would uh, weave together themes of life and death and good and evil, God and the ultimate meaning of life seamlessly into his works. Um, and at the same time, he would also embody just that existential um, philosophy that just colored the 1800s. Now, he lived in Russia during the 1800s, and that was a politically turbulent time, uh, to say the least. And even in early age, he, would, he has already shown his literary prowess, and he had been, in his early 20s even, had been associated with um, certain literary circles that would uh, discuss banned literature and had several friends that were political activists, and it was a dangerous path, and it eventually caught up to him because in April 1849, at the age of 27, he was arrested. Um, now, for the next eight months, he spent incarcerated in a maximum security prison under terrible conditions, constantly being questioned, and um, he writes quite extensively about the horrible conditions in his prison. Until one day, he said eight months later, um, carriages began to roll up, and him and his comrades were loaded onto carriages and taken to an unknown location. Um, no one knew where they were going, but they all assumed that their sentences would be fairly light, since... After all, they were just a part of a book club, right? Discussing banned literature in the middle of Tsarist Russia. Um, they get to their location, and they're, they're brought out, and they are told this. They're told that um, all of their cases have been examined by a secret court, and they've all, found to become, they've all found to be guilty, and their sentence is death by firing squad. And they're sort of taken aback. They're given uh, filthy clothes to put on. They're given a cross to kiss and a chance to confess to a priest they're lined up in groups of three next to gallows, and they push the first row up to the front. The soldiers are readying their weapons, and a rider comes riding in with a message from the Tsar that effectively commuted their sentence. So instead of death by firing squad, they now have to spend the next four years in a Siberian labor camp. And then after that, another six years of compulsory military service. Now, it was after those six years of military service, Dostoevsky wrote back to his brother, and he says this. He says, when I look back on my past and think of how much time I've wasted on nothing, how much time has been lost in futilities and errors, laziness, the incapacity to live, how little I appreciated it, how many times I sinned against my heart and soul, then my heart bleeds. Because life is a gift. Life is happiness. Every minute can be an eternity of happiness. That was a man who had received a fresh start, a second chance at life, a new chapter and a new page, fresh and clean. And I think we all need those from time to time. We need those times where we can roll back the clock and say, wait, do over. I know for me and my family, um, there have been several years that have gone by that we've been sad to see go. And there's also been years to where we usher it out the front door, give a little polite wave or an impolite wave, depending on what kind of year it's been, and slam the front door for good measure. So long, 2014, never see you again, and you won't see a tear about it. Have you ever had years like that? You're like, so long. Well, 
Now, I'm not trying to say that just because this week marks a new calendar year that all of your troubles are over and your new, glorious new dawn awaits. That would be silly because we all know that life's trials and tribulations don't fit in nicely into a calendar page. Nope, they spill out everywhere, taking our carefully laid plans and our vacation days along with them, right? But today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how we can get a fresh start on this new year and how by adjusting our perspective we can start this year right by pursuing the things that really matter. And we're going to do that by looking at a beautiful little parable right smack dab in the middle of Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. And we're going to see that after examining the various aspects of this parable, that by doing a hard reset, a refocus, and a restart, we can live this next week, this next year, and even the rest of our lives in such a way that constantly redirects us to what is most important in life. So, Let's go ahead and take a look at our main text for this morning. If you have your Bibles, please open it and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verse 45. Or if you have your favorite Bible app, go ahead and open that on your phone at this time. We read in Matthew 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant of pearls, or a merchant searching for fine pearls. And when he found a pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, before we get too deep into this parable, I want to take a little time and set the scene. Um, If you'll bear with me, we're going to start in the book of Matthew, and then we'll sort of zoom in to where we are inside the book of Matthew. So what is Matthew all about? Now, every gospel writer contributes something different to how we understand the life of Jesus. We've probably all heard this before, that Matthew presents Jesus as a king, Mark presents Jesus as a servant, Uh, Luke presents Jesus as a man or son of man, and then John presents Jesus as God or son of God. Have we all heard that before? Well, Matthew does present Jesus as a king, but that's really an incomplete picture because Matthew doesn't just present Jesus as king. He presents him as a Jewish king and not just a Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah, and that is to say something different altogether. It's a totally different world. So Matthew is writing to a specific Jewish audience, Uh, in mind. And so when he's doing that, he's got tons of Old Testament references from start to finish of Old Testament prophecies um, that confirm Jesus as the Messiah. Now, these are references that would have been totally lost on a Greek or Roman reader. Um, You know, Israel was like this little blip on the Roman Empire. The Romans had no care about thousand-year-old prophecies about a Jewish king that was coming. What does Matthew care about then? Matthew cares about two words, the kingdom. Okay? In fact, the word kingdom is used 54 times in the book of Matthew. Compare that to only five times in the book of John. Matthew is obsessed with the kingdom because wrapped up in the whole concept of kingdom is a Jew's whole understanding of the flow of history. To the Jew, the kingdom is where history is headed. In the kingdom, wickedness is punished and removed, leaving behind only that which is good and righteous. It's where all the Old Testament prophets and their messages of final hope and full restoration are finally realized. In the end, Israel wins. Israel inherits the land. The righteous are blessed and the wicked are no more. But what we see at the end of the book of Matthew is the exact opposite. We see instead of the Jews being blessed, we have the Gentiles being blessed and grafted in to the body. Salvation is now open to the Gentiles. We have this now new thing called the second coming, as if Messiah is going to come again. We have this mystery in between time called the church, whatever that is. And then we have the Jews, who are supposed to be blessed, end up suffering the consequences of rejecting their Messiah. So how is a Jew supposed to 
read all of this? Like, where is history going now? Do we still have a kingdom? Uh, is God's, are God's promises still good? These are the questions that Matthew is going to attack um, throughout his book. Now, throughout the first half of the book of Matthew, Jesus' message is identical to John the Baptist. Um, repent and believe. The kingdom is at hand. It's here. It's now. And Jesus, just like the Old Testament prophets, he would give his message, and then he would corroborate that message by giving signs and wonders and miracles. And you have to understand, to the Jews, that was part and parcel of the great prophets. All of the great prophets did that. They would give this crazy prophecy, and then they would say, I'll prove it to you because here's a sign and a wonder that's made to validate the message of the prophet. Does that make sense? Jesus was doing the exact same thing, so it rang very familiar in the ears of Jews. He would give these um, these statements about the kingdom of God being here, and then he would perform healings and signs and miracles and wonders that would show that, hey, what I'm saying is true. Now, the problem was that Jew Jewish leaders did not accept his message. And well, well, then what do you do with the miracles? You don't like his message, well, you try to invalidate the miracles. And the only way they could do that was saying, well, yeah, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over too well. Uh, with Jesus. So time and time again throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is presented as king, and time and time again, the leaders who represent the people reject him. And so about midway through the book of Matthew, Jesus finally accepts their rejection, and he changes tactics. He changes MOs. He goes to parables, and these parables conceal the kingdom from those who are rejecting him and reveal it to those who are responding to him. Does that make sense? And so now he's starting to talk about, he doesn't say anymore, the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is at hand. He says, the kingdom is like this. And he goes into a parable. And he'll talk about his forthcoming death and resurrection, the church, and he'll just start laying out the mysteries of the kingdom. So if you think about Matthew in three parts, you can think of it in his presentation as Messiah, his rejection, and then what I call the glorious detour, where he enter where he throws in the concept of the second coming in the church and things like that. But we land in Matthew 13 uh, during a series of parables. And these parables are explaining the mysteries of the kingdom. And this is right after the Pharisees' climactic rejection of Jesus as Messiah. And so the audience of these parables is not just the masses. Okay, Jesus would give the parables... And then he would withdraw, take his disciples somewhere private, and explain the parables to them. And then he would give them other parables to, to go alongside it. And this is one of those passages, okay? These are private kingdom parables given to the same 12 men that just a few short years later would be given the Great Commission and told to take the kingdom to the entire world. Jesus was about to blow the doors open on the word kingdom to a Jew. So let's go ahead and get back to our text and let's see the different components that make up this jewel. Again, we have the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he found a pearl of great value, he went out and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, I trust we don't need to go any deeper into the word kingdom um, for us to understand its importance to the parable. But let's just suffice it to say that a kingdom has three ingredients. It's got a ruler, it's got a right to rule, and then it's got a realm or its subjects. And if any one of those ingredients are not in place, you don't have a kingdom. In Jesus' case, it was the realm, the subjects. The people rejected their king. No people, no kingdom. The next item I want to look at is pearls. 
Now, here in this parable, we have a merchant who is specialized in selling pearls. Now, in your ancient world, this is not your normal pop-up tent flea market merchant, okay? If someone has the ability to be able to specialize and focus in pearls, one of the most rarest commodities in the ancient world, they were either A, super rich, or B, on the payroll of someone who is super rich. Pearls were only be able to be afforded by princes, kings, rulers, things of that nature. Um, to put it into Dave's terms, do you know the most valuable pearl in the world today? It was found in the Philippines by a fisherman who had accidentally snagged a giant clam with his anchor while boating. He gets the clam, he takes out the pearl, and hides it under his bed for good luck. It didn't work because his house burned down. Okay? <laughs> So that's a really good, good luck charm, right? Um, so he goes in after the fire, and under his bed and rubble and all that stuff, he finds a pearl, and it wasn't damaged. And so he's like, yeah, it's probably a good time to take it in and get it appraised, right? So he takes it in and gets it appraised. Now, this is not your round pearl. This is like a, it looks like a big tub of melted vanilla ice cream. Um, it's 26 inches long, 12 inches wide, and weighs 75 pounds, now, how you can get a good night of sleep sleeping on top of a 75-pound blob is beyond me, but apparently he did it. It came in at a whopping $110 million. It's the most valuable pearl in the world. Now, the most valuable round pearl in the world is far less exciting. It's like three-quarters of an inch big and looks like a pretty eyeball. It's three-quarters of a million-dollar pretty eyeball, though. So that would be um, the round, round pearl. Now, if I could throw something in perspective for you, this is really cool. In heaven, John goes into great detail describing the foundations of the new Jerusalem and the gates. And he says in Revelation 21, 21, he says, and the 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each one of the gates is made from just one pearl. So the new majestic new Jerusalem, the place where heaven meets earth, the gates have 12 gates and each one is made from a single pearl. That means that should Godzilla ever have to fight a giant oyster squid, a mollusk thing, the pearl from that giant monster oyster would be able to furnish the gates of one of the gates of Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? I just geek out about that. It's really cool. You think about this huge pearl, and you can always throw in Godzilla and have a good time. Um, so now upon finding the pearl of great price, what did he do? He went out and he sold everything he had and he bought it. Now here, I want us to notice something here. Let's look at the verbs that happened after finding of the pearl. And after all, if you ever want to know what to do with something, you look at the verbs, right? The first thing he did is he went, which means he left the store and he took inventory of his life to see if it was worth it. He sold, which means he counted the cost. He understood what it would take to get the pearl. It would cost everything he owned, and he would have to hold nothing back. That was how valuable this pearl was to him. And then he bought. He committed and sealed the deal. Now, I want to zoom in just on the selling real quick, and I want you to notice that without the selling, there was no buying. He could not buy that pearl with his current funds. He could not add it to his collection. It was impossible. If he could have begged, borrowed, stealed, he would have anything before selling all that you have in order to gain it. It was the only option. Now, I like shooting, and I have since I was a small boy, especially rifles. Um, and I've got a pretty modest gun closet, and there are some guns in there that are just you know, normal, everyday, kick-around guns. Not that I shoot every day, 
But, and then there's also those items in there that are um, more rare and what we call safe queens. It's just you just take it out and dust it off and then put it back in there looking all pretty, right? Um, and a couple of years ago, there was a company called Tracking Point who came out with a new line of rifles and they were so cool. It was like a fighter jet on a rifle. Okay, what it did is it combined like computer technology with good optics and a stable platform for shooting all into one gun. It was so cool. You could look through the scope, and it could be a moving target, stationary, didn't matter. You had a button on your trigger. That was cool. So you'd hit the button on the trigger, and it would put a red dot wherever your crosshair was on your target. And so then when your target moved, the red dot would follow it. And you're like, oh, this is so cool. Okay? And then when you're ready to fire, you pull the trigger, but nothing happens because there's a computer in your gun. Okay, so you've got, the, you've got the trigger pulled. It does not release the round until your crosshair is on the exact spot to where it would hit its target. It's awesome, right? So cool. Right up until the point where you saw the price tag. Okay? Because I don't have $16,000 to spend on a rifle. I don't have $16 to spend on a sandwich. Okay? There was no way that I could afford that rifle unless I sold all of what was in my gun case, and then some, and then a lot, okay? Um, without that selling and cleaning out of my gun uh, safe, there's no way that I could afford that rifle, and I'm sure my wife is very happy with that. Um, now, I want to take that idea of the gun safe, and I want to enlarge it a little bit, because in my gun safe, I have guns that I've had since I was a, since I was a boy, and it would be really hard for me to sell those. They're sentimental. And I think we're the same way because we all have in our gun safe, we all have in our bag different pearls. And some of them we've had for years and years, and there's stories that go along with it. I'm sure um, the pearl merchant, whenever he sold his bag of pearls, this wasn't just business this was his private collection. These are pearls that he had collected over the years through an entire career of searching for pearls. What are our pearls? If Jesus is the pearl of great price and Jesus is the one that we have to sell everything for, then what are those other pearls? They may be things that have helped us when we we're hurting in the past. They may be things that make us happy. It may be an addiction that helps us get by during tough times. Maybe pride maybe a certain little anger, maybe our lust for control. And there's a reason we sang two songs this morning about center our lives, build our lives on your name because Jesus is the only real pearl. Everything else is cultured. It's fake. Y'all know the difference between cultured pearls and fake pearls? I wouldn't expect you to because the only reason I would research pearls was for this sermon. So a cultured pearl is you have this foreign body and they polish it up and get it shaped and they insert it inside your, your clam oyster mollusk thing. And over the next year or two, it puts that coating on that body and it, you have this millimeter thick kind of pearl coating. It's only about a millimeter or two thick because once you take it out, you've still got that foreign body and then your outer coating. A real pearl is Layer after layer after layer after layer after layer. It is a pearl through and through. And that's what Jesus says, that he is the pearl of great price. He is the pearl through and through. Everything else, our other pearls, they might look the same, 
but they're fake. It's only a millimeter thick. If you go inside, you'll see that there's nothing but junk underneath, stuff that you would get in your eye. Nothing more. They're hollow. And so the point is this. Jesus' pearl, the pearl of great price, cannot fit in your bag while you have other pearls in it. The only way this pearl fits in is if you take out all the other pearls. Because you see, Jesus is not just another tool that goes on the tool belt that helps us during tough times. He is the tool belt. Does that make sense? He's not just another person that you understand through our little paradigm. He is the paradigm. Everything comes through him. That is why he can say in John 14, 6, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Does that make sense? He is the paradigm. So no matter how small or how big you envision God to be, he's bigger. He is the lens in which everything else is seen through. So at this point, we've looked at the setting of the book of Matthew, and we've made some observations about the main components. We've seen the kingdom and the pearl and the selling. Now I want to go ahead and look and see how we can apply the truths of this parable to our lives as we set out on this new year. First thing I think we can do is reset, recognize the pearl. So let's reset and look at what is truly important in life. Now that's like the million dollar question, right? What is most important in life? Jesus tells us in very explicit terms. He says this in John 17, 3. This is life, or this is eternal life. The Greek word is zoe. This is life that they may know you, the true and living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It reminds me of those t-shirts back in the 90s. You remember those? Where it's like, football is life. The rest is just details, right? For me, it's like, the rest is just details. But the, it would be like, basketball is life, or dancing is life, chess club is life, scrapbooking is life. The rest is just details. Jesus says, knowing God is life. And there is no rest. Knowing God is life. So what is life about? Knowing God, knowing Jesus. What is the most important thing during my hardest and darkest days? Knowing God, knowing Jesus. What is most important is I experience blessing and joy and prosperity and happiness? Knowing God, knowing Jesus. What is most important is I experience doubt, fear, frustration, anger, failure. Knowing God, knowing Jesus. Because nothing is more important in the coming kingdom than personally knowing the king. And he's given us that opportunity. He says the most important thing in life is knowing God. And if you've gone through the entirety of your life and you still don't know him, you've missed the entire point of this life. It's to know God. The next thing I think we can do is refocus, is we can refocus on the kingdom and determine its value. Just like the merchant had to go away first and count the cost before committing to buying the pearl. Now, the Washington Post did a social experiment several years ago uh, with the world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell, his $3.5 million Stradivarius violin, and a D.C. subway station. Now, um, at the heart of the experiment was this. How important is setting in people's ability to recognize beauty or greatness? So what they did was this, is they put Joshua Bell in street clothes, a baseball cap, and they set him right outside an arcade um, in a D.C. subway station during morning rush hour. Hundreds, and he played some of the most 
virtuosic pieces ever composed by the masters. He played Bach, he played Mendelssohn, Pachelbel, Schubert, Schumann, okay? And hundreds and hundreds of people passed by and only a handful stopped. And there was actually one lady on the video who stopped at the end. He's like, I saw you in the Library of Congress a few years ago. You changed my life. It was wonderful. There was a few people who, who understood, but the vast majority just passed on by. He did collect $32, though, in his case. So it wasn't all for naught. So now I'm sure that violin case was probably insured for more than that person's entire net value, but that's beside the point. So, but here's the point. Extraordinary value in a very mundane and ordinary place. We just got done with Christmas, right? A no-name town of Bethlehem with no-name parents and the Son of God put right in the middle of it. Extraordinary value in a very mundane place. So do we see the value of Jesus' words? Do we recognize their value? Or are they just common pearls that are hidden inside the commonplace? What's the value of the kingdom? Jesus tells us in a parable tucked in the verses just above ours. He says this in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. It's a sister parable to ours, but once again, the emphasis is the value of the kingdom is being worth all that that man had. Now, I'm not one to usually espouse any sort of consumerism Christianity, but just being a part of God's kingdom here and now on this broken and sinful earth is rewarding far beyond anything this world offers by itself. Because in Christ, we find our purpose in knowing the Father through him and his Holy Spirit. In Christ, we see the flow of history marching toward that ultimate goal of all things in heaven and earth being brought together under Christ as its head. In Christ, we see the body of believers, the church, the bride of Christ, using their spiritual gifts for the building up of one another and the strengthening of the body that we may be presented one day blameless by his grace, having neither spot nor blemish. In Christ, we've been given the down payment of his Holy Spirit, God himself inside us, sealing us away until the day of redemption, working in us and through us, giving us the spirit of power and love and of a sound mind, filling us with the fruits of his spirit as we abide in him. In Christ, we can truly say, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Because in Christ, we lack nothing. Amen? Now, I think one of the last things that we can do is do a good restart. Let the rubber meet the road, as it were, and start living for the kingdom. Now, staying close to Matthew, he tells us from the mouth of Jesus in Matthew 6, he says this, but above all, pursue his kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, notice that Jesus says, above all. First priority. Now, my ears kind of perk up when Jesus says, above all. Now, they should be perked up the entire time, but especially when Jesus says, above all, I want to be paying attention. Above all what? Pursue, okay? Pursue what? Pursue the kingdom, okay? Like more than, hmm, Okay, is Jesus concerned with the kingdom? Uh, yeah, above all. Now, think of it in this way. The context he's talking about is Matthew 6, where he's talking about food and water and clothing and shelter, basic human needs. And Jesus says, above all those things, more than all those things, pursue the kingdom. You pursue the kingdom, the Father will take care of the rest. Does Jesus care about the kingdom? Yes, 
What are the first words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer after addressing God as Father? He says this, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. It is first on his list to pray about. Ironically, that's found in Matthew. Who would have thought, right? Now, one thing that might help us overcome our hesitation for living for the kingdom is understanding this concept. It's cost versus loss. And for so many people, it's counting the cost that prevents them from taking a step of faith in Christ. For some, it's lifestyle choices, and others, it's fear of losing control or autonomy. But I guess that's really all of us at some level because we like to make our own rules. and We like to do things our way, right? But in all of these cases, the reason is simple and powerful. The reason we hesitate to live for the kingdom is because we don't understand the value. In both the parable and the treasure and the pearl, the same principle is right there front and center. It costs you everything you have, but you lose nothing. No matter how much you pay, it's worth it. Because the net value of those two men went up after the transaction, right? Because he got the pearl a great price. He got the treasure. If you have to change your lifestyle for the kingdom, it's worth it. If you have to struggle for the rest of your life with a temptation that you wouldn't have even given a second thought to had you not met Jesus, it's worth it. If you have to suffer shame and ridicule from your family and friends, it's worth it. If you have to sell everything you own, it's worth it. If you have to face death, torture, ultimate abandonment by family and all of society, Scripture says the same thing to every single person. It's worth it. Because no matter how much you pay, the value of the kingdom is greater still. One of the most powerful stories of someone who understood this um, comes from India. It's a story of a hymn that many of us in this room will know by heart. It was the late 1800s in an area of northern India that had become known for their brutality against, against Christians. Now, a Welsh missionary in this case um, had gone to a certain village and had left on a short trip, and he had just baptized his first family of converts. Now, this did not make the village chief happy and sat. In fact, he wanted to take that family out and make an example of them. So he grabbed the family and put them in the center square and tried to force a, re a recanting of their faith. And so the father, they gave the ultimatum and said, recant your faith or we're going to kill your family, your two kids and your wife. And he says these words, I've decided to follow Jesus and there is no turning back. And at this, archers killed his two kids. Given a second chance to recant, he says this. He says, my world is now behind me. The cross is still before me. And at this, they kill his wife. Looking down at the bodies of his dead family, they give him a final chance to recant. And he says this. Though there now are none left to go with me, still, I will follow Jesus. And they killed him. Now, the Welsh missionary came back some time later and had heard the reports of what had happened. And to his astonishment, he found that the village chief had come to Christ because of what he had seen. That those who had participated and witnessed the execution had come to Christ because of their testimony. In fact, a revival had broken out in that village. A revival had broken out over northern India. That story became so well circulated among Indian believers that it became one of their indigenous hymns. In fact, our missionaries, American missionaries, had been over there, and when they had come back, they brought that song with them, and they set it to music, and it became one of the great altar calls of the Billy Graham revivals, uh, crusades in the 1950s. I have decided 
to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Yes, more than food. Yes, more than water. More than air and life itself. The kingdom is greater. And the kingdom is worth it. Now, why? Why would we pursue the kingdom? And usually why is one of the first questions we ask. And the answer is really simple and short. We should be living with our focus on God's kingdom because the kingdom is coming. And because Jesus tells us to. The kingdom is coming. That means the day of the Lord is near. Now, this isn't the same as those people on the street corners wearing cardboard signs saying the end is near. Right after John the Baptist was arrested at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus picks up right where John had left off. He says in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, repent and believe was John's and Jesus' call then, and it remains true for us today. Repent, turn away from the things that are counterfeit, the little pearls in your bag. Believe, turn toward what is true. Find your pearl of great price. Same is true for us today. Repent, believe. Now, earlier I said the kingdom is coming and the day of the Lord is near. And I want to explain that just a little bit. I don't want you to think that we're all of a sudden going real doom and gloom. Um, Now, for the last few months, I've spent most of my time in Scripture in the Old Testament prophets. Because if I take a look at my familiarity with the Bible and history, um, I've got like this thousand-year gap where I have no idea what's going on. It's like I've got Genesis. Okay, we're cool. Genesis, we get there. Exodus, Moses, good guy. 40 years of wilderness. Okay, conquest. We're in the kingdom. Yay. We go through the period of judges, and now we're getting the kings. King David, that's my boy. Okay, Solomon, smart guy. And then your kids mess it up, and we get a split kingdom. We got northern kingdom and Judah. Okay, and then we have bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, right? And then God finally gets fed up, takes him into exile, right? Daniel has some really cool dreams over there. Weird, hard to understand. And then somehow they get back and Jesus, right? Uh, There's a good 800 years in there that you're not really accounting for. And so I really wanted to understand that. And um, what you come to is, is this. In the time of the Old Testament prophets, they're speaking to Israel during a time of great disobedience and punishment. Um, and all the while, they're reminding Israel that yes, Duh, outside God's plan for you is nothing but hardship and woe. But one day, after all this punishment is over, you're gonna return to me, and I'm gonna wipe away every tear. I will be yours, you will be mine, and I will set up a perfect kingdom without any trace of sin. It will be perfect in every way. In fact, you won't even have to teach your kids about me because I will write my law on their hearts, and I will know them fully, and they will know me. It's this beautiful picture of hope and final restoration. That's the kingdom. But what ushers in this glorious future is called the day of the Lord. Malachi says it like it is, and he calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now think of it like this. Let's look at the movie Lion King. The last 30 seconds of Lion King, what do you have? You have the sun shining really bright. The choirs are literally singing. Every animal is there, bowed down in their little paws and hooves. Uh, you know, Simba has lifted his newborn child up here. It is this glorious, big, green, bright scene, right? Well, hit the rewind button and go back two minutes. And any parents of small children, you know exactly where you are two minutes back. You are in fire, wind, and rain. The fire is burning up the old regime, Scar's regime, and the rain is washing it away. 
that's the day of the Lord, okay? So the day of the Lord is both great and terrible, and really how great and how terrible is up to us. Because here's the long and short of it. The day of the Lord is coming with unstoppable force, and anything that stands in opposition to it will be burned up and wiped away. This kingdom is going to be perfect and righteous and glorious without sin. Sin will all be gone. All that will be left is the kingdom. There is nothing outside of it. I've heard it said this way to those who are thinking that they're going to sidestep the kingdom or play the neutral card, that the kingdom is coming and there is no room for private empires. That means for us it's kingdom or bust, baby. Now how does this kingdom look to us now? Do we see why Jesus and Matthew put such a heavy emphasis on the kingdom? It's our only hope. We have to be inside the kingdom. So it will be a great and terrible day, and that greatness or terribleness is really up to us. For those of us that are holding on to his kingdom and righteousness and his word, it's going to be a great day. For those who long for his coming, but for those who are holding on to the sins of this world, it's going to be terrible. Because the kingdom is fireproof, and everything that's not a part of the kingdom is going to go up. So for me, I want to make sure that I'm not caught on that day holding on to things that will only leave me with scorched hands. So I'm going to ask you this morning, what is the kingdom of heaven worth to you? How much are we willing to sell? Are the pearls in our bag things that we just, we don't want to touch? We don't want to sell that. That's too too special to us, too many memories there? Or are we willing to sell it all for that pearl? On that great day, will we be celebrating the fulfillment of all God's goodness, his justice, where every wrong has been set right and righteousness is exalted and wickedness is no more? Or will we be silent and uncomfortable, desperately trying to hide our scorched hands? What is the kingdom worth? It's worth it all. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I love that you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't done yourself first. You didn't ask us to pursue the kingdom while you did something else. You truly are our perfect example. Because we don't just see us in these parables, God. We see you too. Because it doesn't say that the kingdom of God is like a pearl. It says the kingdom of God is like a merchant of pearls. And you were that merchant You found us, your bride, your pearl, your redeemed, and you gave all you had and gave yourself for us. For the joy set before you, your word says, you endured death, even death on a cross, and you declared us to be worth your all. And if you paid it all for someone like me, how could I even think to hold anything back for someone like you? For your kingdom is surely worth it all and much more. And God, in this church today, May we live lives that reflect a singular focus on knowing you, your kingdom, your righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.